0: Hey folks, would you like to meet me? More importantly, and I don't mean to cause a panic here, but this is big news. Would you like to meet Paul Holes, one of the investigators who helped solve the Golden State Killer case? Or what about Aaron and Justin from Generation Y, the nicest guys in true crime podcasting? Or crime fighting and detecting puppers? Or police who investigated some of the UK's most notorious crimes like Colin Sutton? Well, you can do all that and more at CrimeCon on Saturday, the 11th and 12th of June in London. That's right, CrimeCon, the world's number one true crime event is coming back to London this summer and it's bigger than ever. CrimeCon is partnered by CBS Reality, the expert led true crime TV channel. Get inside the mind of serial killers and psychopaths, learn from leading criminologists, hear from the families and survivors, meet your favorite true crime podcasters Immerse yourself in forensic evidence and delve deeper into unsolved crimes. I'm so excited to have been invited back to CrimeCon again and I hope to see you there. Limited tickets are available now and make sure to use the code MENSREA for your special 10% discount and to let CrimeCon know that I sent you. To get tickets or for more information, head to crimecon.co.uk. Hello you lovely folks. Just a quick update before we dive into this week's show. You're going to hear a bonus episode that aired over on my Patreon feed last summer this week as I am distracted as all get out. As I've mentioned before, I was recently diagnosed with ADHD and a lot of things have improved over the last few months, but my brain works how my brain works. And right now, me and my husband are in the very privileged position of looking to buy a house. And in addition to all the stress that that brings, I am totally hyper-focused on it. So for right now, I'm doing my best to get actual work done, but also I'm being gentle with myself on this one. It'll pass, eventually, and I'll be back on the ball at some point. Probably. With all that said, I hope you find this episode interesting, and fingers crossed, this day next week, there will be some shiny new content for you to listen to. You're listening to the Mensrea podcast, and this is the story of Rebecca French. It's summertime now, and a lot of Dubliners are thinking about their staycations here in Ireland, now that inter-county travel is allowed again. A lot of families will choose to salvage the summer of 2021 in the sunny southeast of the country. It's easily accessible from the rest of Leinster, has a reputation for better weather, and its coast is dotted with lovely beaches. Many of them have caravan parks right next to them, so if the weather does let you down, you can at least turn on the telly for the night and keep the kids occupied. One of the more popular places to holiday is Wexford, but just like any of the larger regional towns in Ireland, it continues to exist once its visitors have gone home and people are no longer Instagramming their ice creams by the seaside. And alongside all the benefits of living outside the capital, all the problems that people associate with living in a bigger city still exist. At twenty past four on the evening of Friday the 9th of October 2009, a number of people passing through the Carrig area on the outskirts of town contacted emergency services after noticing that a car had been set alight close to the Ballandinus roundabout in Cods Lane. Burnt-out cars generally aren't an unusual sight, but that early in the day indicated that something unsavoury was going on those passers-by had no idea how tragically right they were. Gurdy were on the scene in minutes and immediately opened the doors of the car to try and help anyone who might have been inside, but there was no one there. They opened the boot too, but all they could see inside were flames. The fire hadn't been burning long, but it was fierce and it seemed to them that an accelerant had been used. The fire brigade arrived shortly after and the fire was quickly brought under control. The car was a blue 1998 Opel Corsa, and the emergency services moved in to have a closer look once the fire was out. It was then that they made the horrific discovery. The body of a woman had been left inside. Superintendent Kevin Galtron told the press, quote, Initially the Gardee thought they saw a blanket in the boot. Whether the body was covered or not, I can't tell you at this point, because everything was burnt. There was nothing left of the car, only a shell, end quote. The car and its environs were immediately declared a crime scene and sealed off. A forensics team was called in from Dublin, after which a full examination was carried out. A guard car responding to the crime scene that afternoon while the car was burning had seen a group of four men while en route. The officers inside had stopped To do a cursory check with the four men, who were not acting suspiciously and were walking rather than running. However, some of the men were well known to the Gardee. That evening, the woman in the boot was named locally, that is, unofficially, as 30 year old Rebecca French, who was a mother of two from Mount Prospect, Wexford. Her family were from Maudlinstown, Wexford. Her daughters were 12 and 7. That evening, at a quarter to 6, Gardee called to a house nearby. It was number 17 in the posh Ardnadara estate off the Clonard Road. Six people were questioned that evening. Four men and two women were arrested. Gardie told the papers that a person seen leaving the area was one of those brought in. Six people in the house were arrested in relation to the death of Rebecca French. Chief State Pathologist Dr. Mary Cassidy arrived on the scene the following morning, and after her examination there, Ms. French's body was removed to the local hospital for post-mortem. Gardie were unsure of what had exactly happened. They didn't know if Rebecca had been alive or dead in the trunk of the car when it was set alight, whether she had been unconscious, had been assaulted, or had maybe overdosed on drugs. It was also suggested that it was possible that the car had gone on fire after being involved in a crash. Gardie said that they would have to await the results of the post-mortem examination before they were able to get a clearer picture of what had happened to Rebecca and why it was that she'd been in the boot of the car. Gardie also appealed for witnesses or anyone with information in relation to the case to come forward. A local person said that although what had happened was incredibly unusual, people in the area were suspicious of the house Gardie had called to, telling the Irish Independent, quote, I'm sure people who lived in the vicinity of the area must be in a state of shock. We have known something of a peculiar setup relating to this house, with people coming and going all the time. It was well known to the Gardee. That Saturday evening, the preliminary post mortem results were delivered by Mary Cassidy. This revealed that Rebecca had been the victim of a violent assault and had suffered extensive and serious injuries which had resulted in her death. DNA results came in the following day, confirming what everybody already knew, that the deceased was the young Wexford mother. With this information, Gardy began working off the theory that Miss French had been assaulted in the house in Ardnadara before being put in the boot of her own car and driven by the four men to Cods Lane, where the car was set alight. Every local Garda in Wexford, whether rostered to work or not, was called in to assist with the case. They were joined by members from the National Bureau of Criminal Investigation and experts from the Garda Technical Bureau's Crime Scene Investigation Unit. Up to 100 Garda were involved in the investigation that weekend, making it one of the largest Garda operations to take place in County Wexford to that point. The last confirmed sighting of Rebecca at that point was 11am on the morning of Friday the 9th. Door-to-door inquiries had been carried out all through the area and a number of witness statements had been taken. Traffic checkpoints were set up near Cods Lane in the hopes that regular users of the road might have seen something that would be of assistance to the investigating team and continued to appeal for members of the public to come forward with any information that might be relevant. In particular, they were looking to establish the movements of Rebecca's navy car from Friday morning until the afternoon when she was found dead. Gardy also wanted to speak to anyone who had seen a group of four men walking from Cods Lane back to Ardnadara. Rebecca's movements from Thursday the 8th and Friday the 9th became clearer. Her family were aware that Rebecca had gone out for a drink on Thursday night. Rebecca had left her two daughters with them, and the girls had been dropped to school by them the following morning. The family had begun to worry when they were unable to reach Rebecca throughout Friday morning, and then, with the news that a body had been found on Friday afternoon, and Rebecca was not among those who had been arrested in relation to her burnt-out car, they, correctly, feared the worst. On the afternoon of Sunday, the 11th of October, two women were released from Garda Custody without charge. Both were described as being in their twenties and they lived locally, though one woman was from abroad. Sunday evening, two men appeared before Judge Dunnacha O'Bughla at a special sitting of Wexford District Court, charged with the murder of Rebecca French, having occurred at 17 Ardnadara. 27-year-old Ricardus Dillis and 25-year-old Ruslanus Mnaikas, both originally from Lithuania, were remanded in custody to Cloverhill Prison. Neither had made any response when charged earlier that day. Another man, 26-year-old Peter Pasiak, a Polish national, was also before the court, charged with intent to impede the apprehension or prosecution of a person who had murdered Rebecca French. A crowd gathered outside the court who shouted abuse at the men as they left. All three covered their heads as they were brought out for transportation to prison in Dublin. The following morning at half-past ten, 40-year-old Patrick O'Connor, with an address at 17 Ardnadara, also appeared before the court in Wexford, charged with impeding the investigation into Rebecca's murder. O'Connor had been arrested at New Ross Garda Station at a quarter to one that morning, and had said in response, quote, I didn't want anything to happen in my house, end quote. Like the three other men, he was remanded in custody to Cloverhill Prison. The house that Patrick O'Connor was referring to was in the estate Ardnadara. The houses had been built in 2007 by JPK Developments, and the company was owned by the O'Connor family, relatives of Patrick O'Connor. Patrick was the owner of the five-bed detached house number 17, where all the people accused of involvement with the killing of Rebecca French had been arrested by Gardie. Later on the Monday, Rebecca's family put out a statement criticising some of the reporting of her death that had occurred over the weekend. They said that articles indicating that Rebecca was involved in any way with illegal drugs was, quote, untrue and inaccurate. She was a loving mother, a wonderful sister and a very considerate daughter, end quote. Her 74-year-old mother, Nancy French, described Rebecca as a trusting and kind person who never saw the bad in anyone. Rebecca was the youngest of nine in the family. She had five sisters and three brothers and was often doted on and spoiled by her older siblings. Rebecca had moved to London at the age of 17, returning in 2001 after her first child was born. At the time of her death, Rebecca had been working towards becoming a freelance makeup artist and hairstylist. This episode is sponsored in part by Noom. Noom has built its entire platform on two things, research and wanting to help people lead healthier lives through behavioral change. But even though they're all about evidence based science, they're also passionate about creating a more empathic approach to creating a healthier life. And not only is Noom science based while ditching the shame, it really is easy to integrate into your life. 10 minutes a day is all you need to track your progress and help you change your relationship with food and nutrition. For me, the biggest game changers have been changing my thinking about weight and foods. What I weigh is just a number, it's data. And there's no such thing as a bad food. Realizing that I was carrying around all that shame, despite trying to resist it my whole adult life, letting go of that is just as big a challenge as changing my habits. And that's where Noom is such a game changer. The CBT approach helps you tackle that too. Your health goals are achievable with Noom. Sign up for your trial at noom.com/mensrea. That's n N-O-O-M o o m.com/m e n s r e a. 80% of Noom users finish the program and over 60% have stuck with their goals for at least 1 year. Once again, sign up for your trial and get psychology-based support at noom.com/mensrea. This episode is also sponsored in part by BetterHelp Online Therapy. My to-do list is incredibly long and trying desperately to get everything done when it needs to be done often means that there's one item that always ends up on the bottom of the list and that's taking care of me. But I also note that that's a straight road to burnout, which from a purely practical point of view as a self-employed person, I just can't ignore. Striking that balance for me is still a work in progress, but it is also work I know is worth doing. And that means therapy and self-care is at least on the list these days. What I love about BetterHelp is that it slots into busy schedules and it is really easy to use. It removes so many of those barriers that often get in my way when I'm trying to take care of myself. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's also much more affordable than in-person therapy and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Give it a try and see why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp Online Therapy. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp, and Men's Raya listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com forward slash men's. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash men's. On Tuesday, the 14th of October, Rebecca's removal was held at Carney's funeral home, and the following day, her funeral mass was held at Bride Street Church. The church was packed with family, friends, and neighbours. The celebrant Father Brian Whelan called for the congregation to pray for healing in the community. Rebecca was buried afterwards at Crosstown Cemetery. The following Friday, the four men charged in connection with her murder were remanded in custody at Cloverhill District Court for a further four weeks. Meanwhile, Gardie continued to appeal for information from the public, again with a focus on the movements of Rebecca's opal and the movements of the group of four men. In December of 2009, the books of evidence were served in the case. Then, on Monday the 18th of January 2010, a fifth person was charged in relation to Rebecca's death. 25-year-old Helen Connors of Belvedere Grove appeared before Waterford District Court, charged with acting with intent to impede the apprehension or prosecution of a person she believed to be guilty of Rebecca's murder. She had been brought in by Gardie just before 10am that morning and when the charge was put to her, Ms Connors had said, quote, I was in fear of my life with four hardy men asking me if I wanted a bullet in my head. I told you the whole truth and nothing but the truth, end quote. Gardie objected to bail for Ms Connors, saying that she had failed to appear for unrelated court dates before, that this was a very serious charge and that she had connections in England and therefore represented a flight risk. Her solicitor, Sinead Fox, told the court that Miss Connor had a young child who was being cared for at an aunt's home, and that Helen had resided with her mother since her initial arrest in relation to Rebecca French's murder. Ms Fox asserted that her client had known since that time that charges could be forthcoming, and yet had remained in Wexford. Not only that, Helen Connors did not have a passport, and would be willing to comply with any conditions that might be set for her bail. Ms. Fox conceded that on previous occasions Ms. Connor had missed court appearances, but she said this had been due to a serious drug addiction that the lawyer said Ms. Connors had since overcome. The judge at the district court, again O'Beaucla, asked what Helen Connor's plea was likely to be, but he was told that at this early stage, with no documentation from the Gardee or DPP in the manner, it was too soon to make that kind of decision. Judge Obuecle remanded Helen Connors in custody, saying he would review the situation in a week's time. Bail was denied the following week, however. Gardy, appearing in court, told Judge Obuecle that Ms Connors had not been informed that she would be facing charges in the previous October. The judge was also informed by Gardy that the book of evidence would be ready in the next number of weeks. On the 22nd of February, the book was served and Helen Connors was remanded in custody with consent to go to the High Court to appeal for bail. She did not take this up. On the 5th of October 2010, the trial of four people accused of involvement in Rebecca French's murder got underway in the Criminal Courts of Justice in Dublin. However, an application was made that day by the defence before the jury was sworn in and court was adjourned for the judge to make a decision on the matter. So on the 7th of October then, the trial began but against only two defendants, those charged with murder. Both men pleaded not guilty and a jury of seven men and five women were sworn in. Patrick O'Connor and Peter Pasiak had, in the meantime, pleaded guilty to impeding the Garda investigation. In the opening statement, the court heard that it would be the prosecution's case that two men, Ruslanus Manikas and Ricardus Dillis who were in court with interpreters, had assaulted Miss French. They had both kicked and stamped on her and hit her with golf clubs. The court was told that the state asserted the two men had been aware of each other's actions and had acted jointly to inflict the injuries on Rebecca French. A statement made by Sarah Hall, who worked in a local shop in the town, described how on the morning of the 9th of October the year before, two women had come into the shop while Miss Hall was working her shift one had come up to the till while the other went down to the back of the shop miss hall described the girl who had come up to her there saying quote, "when i was serving her it looked as if she was in her own world i couldn't smell drink but she was definitely on something" miss hall said that she later learned that this woman was rebecca french she also discovered that a bottle of wine was missing from the shop after the two women had left Then the court heard from Jackie O'Hanlon, who was working in Aldi the morning of Rebecca's death. She knew Rebecca, as the two had worked together in the past for a period of about six months. At around 10am on the morning of the 9th of October, Rebecca and another woman had come into the shop. Rebecca went to the till to pay for breakfast items, while the other woman looked around the shop but as the two women went to leave, Miss O'Hanlon noticed that the other woman had a plastic bag around her wrist, which wasn't there before, and seemed to have something in it. She stopped Rebecca and the other woman, and Ms. O'Hanlon said that the second woman seemed disorientated. This woman had two black eyes, which were swollen, and she spoke very quickly. The witness had discovered a bottle of rum in the bag, and Rebecca said that she'd pay for it, but Jackie O'Hanlon had said she couldn't take for it as she wasn't yet allowed to sell alcohol due to the time of day. Another woman who knew Rebecca, Louise Fowler, testified that she'd also seen Rebecca that day. Louise had been driving on the morning of the 9th and had been startled when an oncoming car had swerved into her side of the road and almost hit her. Louise was even more startled when she recognised the driver as Rebecca French. Miss Fowler told the court that Rebecca had a wide-eyed look on her and she wasn't sure if this was because of the near crash or because she was on something. The witness agreed with Connor Devilley, who was acting for Mr Maniacus, when he put it to her that it was not unusual for Rebecca to have been intoxicated, though Louise became visibly upset while admitting this. After this, a number of witnesses described seeing a group of four men walking along a road not far from the site of where Rebecca's car had been burnt out. Then, the emergency workers who had arrived on scene with the fire brigade at a quarter past four that day described quenching the fire and the discovery of Rebecca French's body. Gerda Jason Lynch told the court that he was heading to the scene of the fire and was about 200 yards north of where the car was when he came across a group of four men. The guard had stopped to speak to them. The men said that they were coming from a house on the Newton Road and not from the burning car, and that they were heading to Ardnadara. Another patrol car had called to Patrick O'Connor's house in the Ardnadara Estate that evening at around five twenty-five in connection with an unrelated matter. Garda Ian Tanner told the court that the door had been opened by another man who he could tell had sandy, tightly cut hair and who was not Irish. Gardie had entered the house and saw Mr. Manicus and Mr. Dillis were sitting with two other men and a woman. Neither of the defendants were wearing trousers or shoes at the time. The Gardie noted that the washing machine was running and, in a basket next to the machine, the police saw what they thought to be blood-stained clothing. In a cupboard in the kitchen, Gardie found a box of latex gloves, cable ties and rubber gloves. In the fireplace, there were burnt remnants of what looked like cable ties and rubber gloves, along with a number of pieces of women's jewellery. One of the chairs in the sitting room had the seat covers removed, and they too were found in the washing. In court the following day, Friday the 8th of October 2010, the state pathologist gave evidence. Professor Cassidy had first visited the scene of the burnt car and had observed Rebecca's body while in the boot of the car on the morning of Saturday the 10th of October 2009. Dr. Cassidy observed that a blue plastic bag had been tied around Rebecca's head, secured with a cable tie, and there was another cable tie around her wrists. A red petrol can was on its side nearby. Despite damage to Rebecca's body from the fire, it was still possible for the pathologist to make out bruising left on her body and Rebecca's broken ribs. The post-mortem revealed that Rebecca had extensive defensive type wounds to her arms and there were injuries to her abdomen and ribs consistent with kicking and stamping. Five of Rebecca's ribs were broken. There had been no soot or smoke apparent in Rebecca's airways indicating that she had died before being put into the car boot. Rebecca's cause of death had been blunt force trauma to the head. Mary Cassidy said that the bag around her head could have caused suffocation, it was so tightly secured it had left a mark on her neck. But, in the pathologist's opinion, the bag had been placed there to catch blood coming from Rebecca's head wounds. A toxicology report indicated that Rebecca had consumed a lot of alcohol, two and a half times the legal driving limit. Her blood also tested positive for methamphetamines, crystal meth. Then, Detective Garda Cahill Hannigan from the Garda Fingerprint section told the court that he had examined four aerosol cans found in the living room, as it was thought it was possible that they had been used in the assault on Rebecca. A box of gloves and a hammer found on the mantelpiece over the fireplace had also been examined, as it seemed out of place. On Monday, the 11th of October, A neighbour who lived two doors away from the house in Ardnadara told the court that there was always a lot of cars coming and going from number 17. On the morning of the 9th the year before, he had been at home and at around 9am he had seen a blue opal car driving out of the small estate with two women in it. The car had then left again and he had seen a man driving with a woman in the passenger seat. It was driving erratically. The neighbour, Mr Lovelace, said that he thought, that either there was something wrong with the car, or the driver was drunk, or was learning to drive. That evening, he'd seen four men walking back to the estate without the car. He thought it was strange, as one of the men had left in the car earlier, another he recognised as the owner of Number 17. The Tuesday and Wednesday of that week were spent in legal argument, which, when open court resumed, Mr Justice Barry White explained to the jury was because of a complex new piece of legislation which required dealing with. On Thursday the 14th of October, the court heard that there was blood found in between ridges on a golf club, which had been found by Gardie in a coat stand in the house at Ardnadara. Another club had a smear of blood on the shaft. More of Rebecca's blood was found in the living room of the house on the legs of a stool. There were more droplets of blood on the concrete slabs of the patio in the back garden. The jury were also shown photographs of the house where it was alleged that Rebecca had been killed, after having spent time there drinking with the owner of the house, the two accused, and several other people. Then, on Monday the 18th of October, the trial took a dramatic turn. When the jurors arrived in court that morning, Mr. Justice Barry White told them that they were being discharged, that the trial was over. The DPP had withdrawn the murder charges against the two men. The legal argument that had taken place the week before centred on whether or not the statements taken from the defendants, Mr. Maniacus and Mr. Dillis, which had been given while in Garda custody, were admissible due to the circumstances of their detention in the Garda station Mister Justice White had ruled that they would not be presented in court as the detention had been unlawful. It emerged that after the men had been arrested and were brought to the Garda station in Wexford, questioning was suspended after Gardie had requested that the men be seen by a doctor, as it was clear that they had consumed alcohol. A local GP came to the station and examined both men, confirming that they were unfit to be questioned as they were intoxicated but the doctor had not specified a period of time after which Gardie would be able to resume their interview with them. Gardie had acted in accordance with new legislation that had been brought in the year before to deal with procedures for detaining and questioning people who were under the influence. At 11.45 that night, the time allowed for the initial period of detention for the men had expired. According to the Irish Independent, Mr Justice Barry White ruled that, quote, the interview suspension period, as certified by a doctor, could not exceed six hours, end quote. This ruling had the effect that anything told to the guardie by the men after their initial period of detention had elapsed at a quarter to midnight was done during a period of unlawful detention. Though the DPP had decided not to continue with this prosecution, both men had pleaded guilty to disposing of Ms. French's body and to impeding the Garda investigation. Barry White told the jury that he would not be passing any comment on the evidence and said that the members of the jury would no doubt form their own opinions and conclusions. Rebecca's family had broken down in tears when the decision had been made, though this was not for the first time in the eight-day trial. This episode is sponsored in part by June's Journey. If you never get tired of a whodunit, then you'll love June's Journey. You play as June Parker, an amateur detective investigating a series of mysteries full of twists and turns around every corner. You'll put your powers of observation to the test, sharpen your sleuthing skills, and relish the thrill of solving the case. The story totally draws you in, and finding all the items in the beautifully drawn scenes is incredibly satisfying. I tap my way to relaxation before bed every night, though sometimes I just have to know what happens next. Whether you're craving a good mystery or just need to get away for a while, June's Journey is the perfect game, and with new chapters every week, there's always a new case waiting to be cracked. I finally passed level 500, and I've started a whole new book of stories from June's life. Right now, I'm in Paris with June and her best friend Amelia, who's searching for information on her mysterious parents. I honestly just can't get enough. So if you're ready to join me and awaken your inner detective, go download June's Journey for free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. In the wake of the collapse of the trial, Rebecca's family decided that they would hold off on making any statement on what had happened until sentencing had taken place. Later in October, it emerged that Ruslanas Maniakas had been in court on Monday the 5th of October 2009, charged with threatening an ambulance crew. This related to two incidents. The first had occurred on August 14th, when an ambulance had come to Mr Maniakas' aid, but he had been too aggressive with the paramedics for them to take and so, instead, the man had been arrested. Then, a month later, Gardie had responded to an incident in Wexford Town at a residence in Skeffington Street. Gardie picked up Maniacus and another man as they tried to flee the scene. Again, he was intoxicated and became aggressive with Gardie and he was arrested. Menicus had been released on bail at that hearing after giving an undertaking to the court that he would keep the peace and remain out of trouble. The judge in the court was told that Menicus was in touch with doctors Ash the local mental health services in order to achieve that Manicus's solicitor also informed the court that his client suffered from a terminal illness, had severe mental health difficulties as well as his alcohol dependence, and that he had made attempts on his life and engaged in self-harm in the past. This hearing had happened just four days before Rebecca French's killing. On the morning of the 30th of November 2010, the court resumed for sentencing to occur in the case. Rachel French, Rebecca's sister, stood up in court to deliver the victim impact statement. A copy of her statement was handed up to the judge as she spoke. What she had to say would once again have a sudden and dramatic impact on the proceedings. Rachel said that her sister had not gotten justice. She called the accused in the case animals and continued, quote, most other countries in the civilized world would not take the injustices that we as a nation seem to suffer at the hand of our legal system, end quote. She criticized the decision made by Barry White that the statements made by the two men charged with Rebecca's murder could not be presented in the court, despite Gardie having done what Rachel described as fantastic work during the investigation of her sister's murder. Rachel went on to call for a system to be put in place to prevent people with previous convictions moving to Ireland, referring to the fact that the two defendants had convictions from their time in Lithuania, and calling those who entered the country with convictions inhuman. Mr Justice White now faced a problem. Though it was understandable that the family was angry, the statement had crossed a line into prejudicial, and now that the judge had heard it, it might call into question the fairness of any sentence he handed down. The victim impact statement might be pointed to in any appeal of the sentences, too. Justice White felt he needed to send the statement on to the DPP for the matter to be reviewed and for it to be decided independently whether it would be better for him to recuse himself from the case. Mr Justice White acknowledged the grief and deep upset that the Frenches were experiencing, but also said that it was his opinion that the statement read in court was inappropriate, xenophobic, and either lacked an understanding of the legal concepts of presumption of innocence, joint enterprise, and judicial function, or had contempt for them. The DPP at the time, James Hamilton, made the decision that Barry White could continue in the case, saying that no one could think the judge had been swayed by the remarks made during the impact statement. And so the sentencing went ahead then on the 10th of December 2010. Roslanus Munaikis and Ricardus Dillis appeared alongside Patrick O'Connor and Peter Pasiak. Mr Justice Barry White had some choice words for the men. He described their actions as despicable, and went on to say that there was very little to distinguish between the actions of the four men. The judge said that in his opinion the maximum sentence of ten years was not nearly enough for them, and that although they enjoyed the presumption of innocence, one or more of the four men were responsible for the brutal and savage death that Rebecca French had suffered. Additionally, little to no guilt had been shown by any of the defendants, though Barry White did note that Mr Monicus had said he was sick with guilt to Gardee. He also had to take into account their pleas. The maximum sentence of ten years was imposed by the judge in relation to Maniacus, Dillis and O'Connor, with the final two years suspended, and in relation to Mr Pasiak, he handed down the maximum with two and a half years suspended because the man had a record of no prior convictions. The suspended portions of Monicus, Dillus and Pasiax's sentences were dependent on them voluntarily returning to their home countries once their sentences had been served. The French family said very little after this, only that they were happy with the sentences having accepted that they would have to adjust their expectations after the collapse of the trial. On June 4th, 2011, Helen Connors, the woman charged with impeding the Garda investigation into Rebecca's death, appeared at the Central Criminal Court in Dublin, before Mr Justice Garrett Sheehan and a jury of eight men and four women. The court was told that it was the state's case that Helen Connors had disposed of and attempted to destroy evidence, with the intent to impede the prosecution of others in the case. The jury would hear that Connors and Rebecca French had been in the Ardnadara house in the two days before Rebecca was found dead. Mary Ellen Ring for the prosecution read a transcript of the six interviews conducted by Gardie with Miss Connors. The defendant had told Gardie that she, Miss French, and the four men who had been convicted in relation to Rebecca's killing had been drinking together in the living room of 17 Ardnadara. She alleged an argument broke out between Rebecca and Ricardus Dillis and Dillis had punched Rebecca in the face a number of times. Miss French had told Dillis that she'd go to the guards and at that point, according to Miss Connors, Mr Dillas had become even more aggressive and called out to the other three men to go into the kitchen with him. Helen Connors said she had overheard one of the men call Rebecca a rat and heard them talking urgently about gloves. The defendant went on to tell Gardy that when the men returned from the kitchen, they were all wearing white latex gloves. And then a further attack on Miss French took place. Dillas was alleged to have kicked Rebecca in the face, and Rebecca had tried to get herself up and run to the door, but she wasn't able to get away. Miss Connor's statement then outlined how all four men attacked Rebecca. According to Miss Connor's, they'd hit her with the golf club and repeatedly kicked Rebecca as she lay on the ground. The defendant also recalled that Patrick O'Connor had sprayed C.S. gas in Miss French's face and went and lit a fire in the sitting room. Later, he allegedly instructed Miss Connors to burn various items in the fire. Helen Connors had said, quote, they all had a go attacking her, they were intent on killing her, end quote. After this, the woman had told Gardy that Patrick O'Connor had informed the other men that there was a river nearby where he knew they could dispose of Rebecca's body. When the men left to do this, they instructed Helen Connors to clean the house and get rid of any bloodstains left from the vicious assault. While speaking with Gardee, Helen Connors asserted that she was in fear of her life while the attack was ongoing and in its aftermath. She was sure that if she didn't do as she was asked, that she too would be killed. She was scared to leave the house when the men had gone because Ms Connors said they could return at any time and if they caught her leaving, she feared she'd be killed. The following day in court, Diane Daly, who had dealt with DNA evidence in the case, testified that material that was identified as blood on Ms. Connor's clothing was matched to Rebecca French's DNA. The ballistics section of the Technical Bureau had found 37 separate locations which had blood like staining in the house, on furniture, walls, floors, and clothing. Some of the clothing had been found in the utility room next to the washing machine. The jury were sent out on the 8th of June to begin deliberations and were sent home for the night. The following day, Thursday the 9th of June, after four hours of deliberation, Mr Justice Garrett Sheehan instructed the jury that he would accept a majority verdict. The eight men and four women were called back in that afternoon, after another hour, and they informed the court that they were unable to reach a verdict. The jury was hung. Garrett Sheehan put the case in for mention later in that month and remanded Helen Connors in custody until that date. On Monday the 27th of June, a retrial was ordered in the case. Meanwhile, in February of 2012, Peter Pasiak brought his appeal against the severity of his sentence, arguing that Mr Justice Barry White had been unduly influenced by the manner in which Rebecca's body had been disposed of. This was rejected, with the appeal court noting that this was a very grave crime and saying that the sentence was appropriate. Then, on the 12th of June 2012, Helen Connors went on trial for a second time in the Central Criminal Court, this time before Mr Justice Paul Carney and a jury of nine men and three women. The court heard from Garda Sean Toomey, who had responded to the scene of the burning car, and then to the house at Ardnadara on October ninth, 2010. Mary Cassidy, the state pathologist, also gave evidence to the court, as did the woman who had seen Rebecca French in the Aldi shop that Friday morning. A number of other witnesses recalled seeing the group of four men walk back towards Ardnadara as the car fire was being put out. The jury heard that Connors had told Gardie in one of her statements that she had been grabbed by the men, held up and forced to kick Rebecca herself. Connors stated, quote, God forgive me, I didn't want to do it. I was told to kick her. They held me while I kicked her. In my own mind, I thought I'd be killed if I didn't. It was a do or die situation, end quote. Miss Connors had also asked that Gardie move her to another town or even another country. Such was her fear that the others involved in the disposal of Rebecca's body would retaliate against her and kill her. In her closing statement delivered on the 15th of June, Counsel for the State, Una Ni Rafferty, BL, told the jury that if Helen Connors was in such fear for her life, she could have fled the house during the 30 minutes that the men had left. The jury retired and then returned just over an hour later. They had reached a verdict. The 12 individuals unanimously found Helen Connors not guilty of attempting to impede the inquiry into her friend's murder. After the sentencing for the four men in 2010, Gardie told the press that they would not be looking for any further suspects in relation to Rebecca French's death. This means that no one will face trial or conviction for Rebecca's murder. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Pod, or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. A special thanks this week goes out to Anne Morgan, Rose and Zoe McGetchen. If you'd like ad-free episodes or bonus episodes like what you've just heard, head on over to patreon.com forward slash mensreapod. You heard at the top of the show that I'll be at CrimeCon in London in June, please come see me. And if you buy tickets, please use the mensreya code. The more it's used, the more likely I'll be asked back again and it helps make me actually attending the event much easier. Tickets are available at crimecon.co.uk. I'll also be at the True Crime Podcast Festival 2022 this year. I was so sad to miss last year due to travel restrictions, but I will be in Dallas, Texas on the 26th to 28th of August sweating like a sinner in church. I can't wait to see all of my stateside podcast friends. Please come and say hi to me so that I'm not too lonely. Visit truecrimepodcastfestival.com to grab your tickets. Thanks also to our sponsors for this week. BetterHelp, help noom and june's journey remember supporting our sponsors supports this show so check them out in the show notes our theme music is quinn's song the dance begins by kevin mcleod additional music is by Juanita meisel and kevin mcleod this episode was researched written and produced by me your host chinead all sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website www.mensreapod.com and so till next time don't do anything I wouldn't do.